is uh, a little follow-up on the announcement of the Aon 2023 um, that I made some time ago. Uh, it is responses to two of the questions that have emerged. <clears throat> what to do and why Aon? What to do, the answer is, I don't know yet. <laughs> we need to figure it out. Uh, we need to figure out what to do and you need to participate and you need to contribute and you need to start talking to the people around you about what makes sense to you. The own year is not like one coherent finished project that, for instance, I am making happen. I'm trying to set up some stuff, yes, but I'm an individual person. I don't have a lot of uh, resources to, to move about, actually. Um, the the own is more just the announcement, the calling for people to make stuff happen. We need to figure out the where and the when and the how and the how long and all those questions, you know. So the big upfront call is to start talking about it. <laughs> um, I have thoughts, uh, stuff that I think would make sense. Uh, I think it would make sense to use this as a theme in relation to existing festivals, rock festivals, gatherings and so on. But I don't have a festival, so I'm just making the suggestion. Um, that that we mark this, you know. Uh, I would also suggest thinking about sacred sites and congregating on them. For instance, the Yule Moon on January 6 in Lyra and the Disa Moon on March 7 in Uppsala. Uh, that are really good times to celebrate this. Um, yeah, I really hope, for instance, that some somebody will make something happen in Uppsala and, and then, we, then we can keep pilgrimage there. And I hope that people will also make stuff happen in other locations that might be sacred to where people are, not necessarily in Scandinavia, right? Um, and I think pilgrimages make a lot of sense, but, you know, th this is just me throwing out thoughts. Basically, we all need to participate in figuring out how this should be marks, marked. <clears throat> and this is likely not going to be one thing, but many. Uh, one um, suggestion that I'm making is... Um, my friend, uh, Joseph Hopkins, he notes that Nordic heathens seem to have what he calls a culture of bickering. And I think he's right. And uh, I think the reason is that distant Nordic material is sort of veiled under these warping and morphing fogs of history and problematic sources and so on. And finding stuff is there is highly individual. But you always feel that you've found the truth, you know. I know I totally do, right? So, so there's a lot of different truth going around. And I would encourage to try to follow the protocols of what Tyson Junger Porter calls yawning. <clears throat> yawning is like a debate form that is useful in developing rituals. It's always respectful, but not just respectful. In fact, it avoids contradicting altogether, which... I think it's going to be difficult. I think a lot of scholars are going to find it difficult. Um, it's non-linear and associative. It moves moves freely between topics, uh, possibly somewhat how you think when you've smoked cannabis, something like that. <laughs> uh, and it's socially grounded. It's people who typically know each other or are meeting and drinking tea together or eating together, sharing something together. So there's a relational binding going on. The thing is that finding rituals pretty much from scratch is going, going, going to be difficult and it will require accepting that people find stuff meaningful that you don't. But that in time, right meanings, right practices, 
will emerge if we commit to the communal learning and traditional knowledge processes through which such uh, practices emerge. So we, we, we don't only need to figure out what to do, but also how to talk about it. For instance, when some, some, someone says something, uh, and yeah, there is something in there that you can disagree with, and you can promote yourself by disagreeing and telling the person that it's the real historical truth is not that, but that and that. But if we're supposed to build this up, then we need a little bit of this yawning kind of culture where you are actively trying to avoid opposing stuff uh, in order to f- focus on building up synergy. Uh, cool. Here's the next question, which is, why do we call this the Year of Aun? And uh, the idea originally came from uh, the scholar of Old Norse religion, Joshua Root. And here comes uh, a part of an explanation and some thoughts of my own that I'm just trying to throw out there in a yawning way, you could say. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here some of the stuff in Andreas Nordberg's uh, seminal work on uh, Nordic pre-Christian reckoning, which is called Jul og Disting i Tidreckning. Okay, it's like this. Aun the Old was a Swedish king who was associated with the cycle of celebrations and cycles of the moon and almost certainly the eight-year cycle. He became associated with the 19-year cycle of returning moon phases and even with that 304-year cycle where this 19-year cycle moves a little bit in relation to the solar dates. Just accept it. (laughs) It is almost as if people still needed Aun as the personification of these cycles, also when they changed or when new reckoning systems came. His association with the eight-year cycle is based on a myth which is referred to in a whole number of sources where bits and pieces of his myth is communicated. The Skjaldunga saga, Saxo Grammaticus, Historia Norvegiae, uh, a king's list from the Flatea book, the poem Inglingatal, and primarily the Inglinga saga. Here we get the myth of Aun the Old of Uppsala, who in order to prolong his life into this state of total ineptness, where he was just lying in a bed and couldn't move, he sacrificed his sons in this cycle of eight years, and in the ninth, that was the last one. There's also a parallel myth of Halvdan the Old uh, in Denmark, who instituted a great midwinter sacrifice, and he had nine, nine sons that somehow died, and then there were nine other sons, and so on. So this indicates a little bit of a pan-Scandinavian mythic structure there. Fundamentally, Aun, who came to personify different cycles, uh, cycles of time, was in all likelihood a personification of this most important cycle, because his sacrifice of these nine sons corresponds to that eight-year cycle of celebration where you celebrate in the ninth year, that octennial cycle. Because um, Adam of Bremen describes the sacrifices in Uppsala, and he mentioned that the number of sacrifices of each species, including humans, was nine. So Aun personifies Uppsala-related time cycles. We know that from history. And the myth says that he passed that number of years sacrificing that number of sons that was 
sacrifice in the Uppsala celebration. So this makes it very, very likely that th this myth about him is what you call an etiological myth that explains or gives shape to this cycle of celebration or that as aspect of this celebration. But then the question withstands, what the flip does this weird myth of sacrificing sons mean? And what the flippity flip does can it mean for us today? Um, why exactly is this sacred cycle of years based on Aun's weirdly pathologically clinging to his life, killing his own sons, so he ends up unable to move, just lying on a bed, being fed milk through a horn, which is basically a medieval baby bottle, right? This kinship destructive clinging to life while giving his sons to Odin is actually pretty weird considering that this is a context which is highly kinship-based and kinship-focused society where getting sons for a king is really central and where Odin is rather articulate that Aun's kind of clinging to life is certainly not an ideal. Here is Odin's own explicit op opinion on that matter. The cowardly man thinks he will live forever if he stays away from fighting, but old age won't grant him peace even if spears spare him. Why is this strong image of pathologically dysfunctional humanity the model that articulates this beautiful recurring alignment between the cycles of light? And I thought a bit about it and I don't have a particularly good answer. So let me just say that you shouldn't necessarily be content with my suggestion, but think on with this yourself. The best I can give you is that there's some sort of negation at play. The story of Aun must somehow be a dark inverted mirror of some sort of logic. The old king who prolongs his life into a state of total incapability while killing his own seed, negating his own fertility. Like in the logic of this sacred kingship worldview, this just seems like an icon of the decrepit king's king, you know, who kills hope, in fact, in order to linger himself, pretty much reduced to a vegetable, literally with a baby bottle, right? Even in the context where human sacrifice was normal, the point of it seems actually to be the wrongness of our behavior. That seems to be almost the point. And remember that this is a, a world where the power and vitality of a king is extremely important for the fertility and fortune of the land, right? One uh, perhaps associative train of thought could read the myth of Aun in parallel with the, the medieval European motif of the wounded king, the fisher king, um, which is a motif that we know from the Grail myth. The fisher king is wounded in his abdomen, his fertility, right? Like Aunt, he can't stand, notch, notch, wink, wink, right? In Le Comte du Graal, the story of the Grail by Chrétien de Troyes, the hero Percival um, is one of these ash lad types, a bit like D'Artagnan in The Three Musketeers, the innocent but powerful youngster. He visits the Fisher King, and in his castle he sees this procession that carries these mystic objects, a bleeding spear, a candelabra, a silver platter, and an elaborately decorated garal, which we don't know what it means, 
we later in the story hear that he should have asked about the Grail, and uh, and then that would that question would have healed the wounded king. Why does the question of the Grail heal the wounded king? Um, so, is there in the story of Aun something about the healing of this deeply decrepit, wounded king, and his weirdly destructive behavior? You know, perhaps those actual nine human sacrifices that the myth probably prescribed in the Viking Age are some sort of mirroring healing of the reality cosmos wounded by the wounded king. You know, in, in this dysfunctional fertility, uh, killing his own uh, offspring, this yeah, dis- dysfunctional functionality basically being healed somehow. Uh, the king in this heathen reality uh, can be seen almost as a, a sacred human body that condenses fertility and thereby the positive reciprocal relations between human communities and the land that we inhabit. And this is why they sometimes also sacrifice the ki- their kings. Like if the king didn't really work as this human hub of connectedness uh, and the land went barren, then well, probably give him back to the gods or something like that and get another one, see if he worked better. So uh, perhaps we can see this symbolism of healing of the failed fertility uh, in this myth and thereby something about rupture or potential rupture between humanity and the land. And that's something that makes sense if you're a Nordic animist. (laughs) This is just communicated in this Viking Age myth that doesn't make much sense today. Practice of human sacrifice doesn't make sense today. Now, uh, it doesn't belong more in our age than crucifixions or martyrdom by blood baptism belong in, in the lives of contemporary Christians, right? So what does it mean then to us today? What is sacrifice to us? And if I'm right, then what does healing mean? You know, and how do we, uh, how do we heal? How do we create this healing? How do we work on the the conceptual basis of what this is in order to effect healing? Cool. So I'm just shooting some thoughts on the table here. But uh, I think we need to yarn about all these things and get thinking going about trying to create positive synergies about how to handle this and so on. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening and see you around. (laughs) 